Hey guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome to No Limits, the Thriller Podcast. What's new this week, Mike? Not much, but I'm excited for our first episode on the brand new No Limits, the Thriller Podcast feed. Boom, baby, we're here. We got three feeds now. Can you believe it? Yes. Rocking and rolling. Well, so if you guys don't know, well, obviously you do because you're, you're you're listening to this podcast. But if you're kind of we you're kind of confused why you know we're putting out these two things, we, we sort of covered it on Bra- on our Brathor episode. But yeah, no, this is a new feed where we're going to be bringing you all of our thriller related, thriller adjacent content, like we did during our first season in the Mitrap Pod. We did author series. We talked about you know different books that were outside of the Mitrap verse. We talked about uh, movies and stuff like that. So we wanted to sort of move it away from the Brad Thor, keep that strictly about Scott and Brad and, you know, bring it to a new home where it has, has its rightful place. Uh, and if this is the only thing you care about, like you can, you can just subscribe to this. You don't, if you don't like, don't read the Brad Thor books, which I don't know why you wouldn't, but you know, if you, if that's not your thing, just come here and you get all those, these, these juicy pods for you. And boo, we have, we're kicking you off with a mint one today. Yes, indeed. That's why we wanted to launch this breakaway new feed, because we've loved covering the Mitch Rapp stuff in season one. Now we're doing the Scott Harvath books, one book every month on the Scott Harvath feed. But we wanted to cover some incredible series and talk about new releases as they come out. Such exciting news in the Thrillerverse every single week. We wanted to be able to keep up with you, bring on some authors, and just review different types of books that are out there. So we'll bring you all that right here. But yes, today, the Shepherd series. This one is quickly becoming, even just two books in, one of my all-time favorite series. It's doing something completely different in the Thrillerverse space. So let me give you a quick blurb about the new Shepard series from Andrews and Wilson. The Shepard series follows former Navy SEAL Jedediah Johnson as he confronts ghosts from his past and demons in the present. On missions to stop dark forces in an increasingly chaotic and dangerous world, facing an enemy unlike anything he's faced before, to survive, Jed must tap abilities beyond the skills he developed as a SEAL. Abilities that only faith can awaken. Boom. This series, they're doing something different. Yeah, it's very intriguing. I, I unfortunately have not had a chance to uh, read these. I've just had my fourth child, or my wife just had her fourth child. So I need to get caught up. But just reading this little blurb, I'm I'm down. They, they I remember them t- talking to us about this when we interviewed them last year. I've obviously read the Tier 1 series. Really enjoyed that. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to dive into this one. It seems, it seems a little different, and I kind of like it. And I'm not the only one that likes it. We got a, we got a little quote here from uh, Mark Greeny of The Gray Man. He says, Dark Intercept is a masterpiece of military th- thriller with remarkable heart and depth. No one in the genre writes grittier and more authentic action than these two authors. And yet Dark Intercept also deals with an intriguing question of spirituality and the human condition, making it a spellbinding page turner that will leave you both thrilled and enriched by the experience. 
I want to be thrilled and rich, Mike. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have to pick up my copy of Dark Intercept and and, and get through it. Enriching is definitely one of the best adjectives to describe these books. They are fantastic. And one other thing before we jump into the interview, halfway through we do give a spoiler warning. So as we'll do quite often on the No Limits Thriller podcast feed, we'll give you very clear spoiler warnings. Some episodes you'll be able to listen to the first half before you read the book, but most episodes on this feed are for people who've read the books, enjoyed them, so come on back here when you're done. If you see a title that we've covered, come and click on it, listen to that episode. We'll give you a spoiler warning once we start talking about the actual plot. And that happens about halfway through this interview. So if you didn't read yet Dark Intercept and Dark Angel, listen in for that. It will be very clear when you need to cut it. But man, you got to pick up these books, Chris. They're I Honestly, they're probably two of the top thrillers I would recommend in the last couple of years. Oh, wow. All right, cool. Yeah, they're top of the list. All right, I'm down. I'm down. And a hot take. I'm going to say it, Chris. Even though you couldn't join me for this interview, yeah, I'm going to say it. This is the best interview on No Limits. Ever. You've hit the, you've hit the mountain peak. And I wasn't even this there. This one was peaking. You left me behind. It's definitely the best one we have yet. It was the best conversation yet. You could see about halfway through when we get into spoilers. Actually, there's a point where Brian and Jeff start talking to each other as if they're just kind of like planning <laughs> That's and the discussing. Best. That's the best. And then at one point, they start interviewing me because they're so jazzed about getting to talk about their books. And what's cool is this feed is going to try to discuss books with spoilers and very often with the authors after most people have read it. So we don't want to release these episodes the week before a book publishes. We want to release two weeks after it published right, exactly. to give people a chance to read it and come back and hear a take on it. Yeah, so here's Mike's interview with uh, Andrews and Wilson. All right, today we welcome back two very special guests. They've been on the podcast before, but we're here to talk about their brand new book in the Shepherd series. I absolutely love it. Welcome back, Brian Andrews and Jeff Wilson. Thanks. Thanks for having us again. Good to see you. Yeah, excited about this book too. Yes. And for anyone who doesn't know how we do things here on No Limits, the Thriller podcast, Jeff and Brian were nice enough to stay on in the second half of this interview and dig into the spoilers. So, Keep listening, even if you haven't picked up either book in the Shepherd series, Dark Intercept or Dark Angel, and we'll give you a spoiler warning about halfway through when we switch over and start talking about the actual plots. But let me just kick it off by asking you guys, you are in brand new territory. You are creating something the Thrillerverse has never really seen before, digging into this idea of spiritual warfare the need for spiritual guidance for operators in the field, you bravely and boldly confront those issues. What's the message you want to send by writing this series? Well, you know, I think that uh, it's funny because we do get asked that a lot about, you know, some people call it a pivot or this change or, or whatever. And I don't think that either of us really thought of it that way when we started down this road. You know, these these questions of faith and, you know, no matter what your answer to the questions are, questions of 
who am I in the universe? Who is God? Is there a God? What is his role in my life? Those are so universal that if you're going to write character-driven fiction, I think it's almost disingenuous to not include some element of that in your work. Um, and, and you've seen little little bits and pieces, little teases of some of that stuff in our other work. Here we do confront it a little more broadly. It becomes a, an integral part of the plot. But I think that uh, in particular, this idea of crisis in faith for veterans is almost as universal. Anyone that's spent time in, in combat has asked some hard questions about, you know, why would God allow this to happen? Or where is God in this situation? And so writing that into a character like Jedediah Johnson was very fun. It was very exciting. But I also think it, as you sort of hinted with your, you know, what's the message? The message is these are universal things that people need to confront. Uh, and we were excited to be able to bring that to the page. So um, no matter where people land on the issue, not asking the questions is unhealthy and uh, something that should be avoided. Now, when we get to the spoiler section of the interview, then I think we can dig into some of the spiritual ISR that we talk about. Uh, and that really gets developed more in book two. So we won't want to talk about too much of this part of the interview, but that'll be really fun uh, to get into that discussion. Right. And not just Jed, but I'm looking forward to all the cast of characters That's right. that are involved. Because, you know, it really takes a village, as they say. And that can be applied in so many ways. But when you guys apply it to spiritual warfare in the field and in the hearts of the operators, it takes a village approach, you know, means something entirely new. And in the second book, Dark Angel, we have to talk about this idea of spiritual directors and guidance. I'd imagine that's something operators could also use in the field. Obviously, it would have to be in a, a you know, a secular way, but with the focus on mental health and whatnot, and, and we see so many issues of PTSD, for someone who's not particularly interested in the fight with the demon or spiritual development, the themes, like you said, still last and still can be applied in other ways. Yeah, I think in a secular uh, thriller where you're talking about intelligence in this very kinetic battle space, right? Every operator would love to have just almost prescient intelligence coming in their way, right? Information that's timely, a way to deconflict all the noise and the confusion. And so that's what we did in this book, but we did it through the watchers and the spiritual component. But like I said, we should probably kick that to the to spoiler section so we don't give up too many details. But I also think it's fair to, to just interject this idea that if you're going to do that, just like we do in our other books uh, in, on the secular side of things, to develop those aspects of, uh, of just the good guys without showing the flip side and the bad guys is a little disingenuous too, right? So, um, you know, it's really easy to talk about good but if you talk about it without the counterpoint of evil, then it's less interesting and probably less accurate. And so in this book, in this series, we wanted to show both sides of that of that issue. And I like the idea of, you know, Brian talking about um, the way you gather intelligence and how things are kinetic, but how it's also a very community based, like you were saying, team approach, Michael. It's you. Everyone has to be part of it. And um, I think that's true on the faith aspects as well as in the military aspects. So those are things that sort of blended together pretty easily. Right. And I guess that's a, a balance because these books absolutely capture, you know, the kick-ass, action-packed thriller scenes that we're used to. 
actually see a lot of your tier one or sons of valor <laughs> kind of uh motifs running through i mean just even think of jed I, I look for some comparisons to your previous operators and so regardless of where you might stand on some of the spiritual stuff these books hold up as well on on the action how did you have to in your minds deliberately tinker in some way with how you wrote the action scenes or did you take the same approach you usually do and and just add these elements to what is already happening? Yeah, I mean, I think it was more the latter. I mean, I think that that, you know, the writing that sort of thriller is just that's our that's our DNA now. Right. We've uh, I guess between us, we're at over 20 books and um, we have a formula that works. And, you know, for us, that is portraying things, including combat scenes in a gritty way, but also in a way that's realistic where, you know, our teammates and and people that we've interacted with will go, yeah, that's not too far. That's not too fictionalized. That's not too, too crazy. Um, so we just wanted to add those, those other elements to that. And, and I think that's an important point to make is that this series first and foremost is an Andrews and Wilson covert ops thriller series, right? I mean, this is, if, if you've read our other books and you're a little, you know, trepidatious about trying this out because of some of the things on the dust jacket, it's an Andrews and Wilson book. It's an Andrews and Wilson series. You're going to love it. To me, adding those other elements just adds another rich layer on top of it. But uh, I hope uh, we certainly set out to make sure that we didn't detract from a good, entertaining thriller. Look, we say all the time, readers love to learn, but they hate to be taught. And so if you're going to do faith-based elements in your book, you got to apply that just as much, if not more. You know, we're not here to preach or teach or anything like that. This is a good, entertaining book, but we hope that at the end, maybe you have some questions that you want to think about or talk about that sort of thing. It is a conversation starter. One of the things that's different about this series, when we talk about, you know, what's different between this and our other series, for me at least, and I, I think I can speak for Jeff too, when we started off with Jed and, you know, right from the beginning, you sense that, he's carrying around a lot more baggage um, than our other protagonists. And, you know, there's this event that happened in his high school, uh, his high school days, you know, when he was dating Rachel and his best friend, David, they were like the three musketeers always together and something terrible happened. Something so terrible that, you know, it really was like derailed his entire life. You know, he was, set on becoming a minister. That was the path he wanted to, to go down and marry Rachel. And, you know, for something so terrible to happen that would drive you away from, you know, your girlfriend, your best friend, and, and, and the vocation that you wanted to enlist in the Navy and go become a warfighter, you know, that, that was traumatic. And so for us to, to sort of think about what was that event, what would do that to a person, you know, this whole idea of running from your fears versus facing them. When you start in the beginning of Dark Intercept, you know, we force Jed through circumstance that he's going to have to face his fears because if he doesn't now, there's no, no option for him to run away anymore. He's being medically retired from the, from the SEALs. David calls him out of the blue with the request that he simply, you know, his spirit, his soul, his heart, he can't say no to this. But in saying yes, you know, we're putting him in a situation that's very unique, I would say, for Anders and Wilson thrillers. Coming home, unpacking those demons from the closet, both literally and figuratively. And challenging as a writer, right, Brian? Like, this mm -hmm. is not a, 
it, it's a little different of a hero's journey, a hero's arc from what you typically see in this type of thriller, right? When you read, you know, our work or Josh Hood or Don Bentley or Mark Cameron or Graney or whoever you read in this space, there's sort of a, I don't want to say a formula because we all do it a little different, but there's a there's an arc for a hero that's sort of accepted. And for us, it's always been meeting our protagonists at the sort of at the peak of their game, right? John Dempsey, you know, Chunk Redman. These guys are guys that are doing things. Um, they're tier one operators. They're at the height of their career. And Jed, he begins this book as a broken man. I mean, physically, he's broken emotionally and psychologically he's broken because he's losing his purpose. He's losing his teammates. He doesn't know where he's going to go. He doesn't even know what he's going to do. And spiritually he's broken because he's, as Brian was saying, he's going to have to confront some of these demons from his past simply because he's got nowhere to run anymore. Like he was able to just dive into being a, a team guy and focus on that for 15 years and not have to think about anything. And that's been jerked out from under. So we meet him at the very beginning of the book at his bottom and it's not the classic way to approach the hero's journey. We definitely have broken many characters over our career. Uh, and we, we generally add the baggage on the page as we move them forward, rather than having them show up on the doorstep with their giant backpack full of problems already. So it was a little bit different and challenging, but a lot of fun. Speaking of that challenge, I know we talked about it last time and you guys spoke about it extensively. I'm curious how the, the shared partnership of writing is that uh, any different or was the balance different? Did somebody feel they were stronger, had more of a skill set for writing the spiritual scenes? Did you both feel comfortable with that? How did you kind of split the work of who's going to really dig into the the spiritual warfare? You know, honestly, I think like all of our work, it was a it was a shared labor. It was 50 50. We, we it's just our we went into great detail with you last time about our you know method of doing it. And that method just doesn't lend itself well to, you know, you do this and I do that. And then right. we'll see how it turns out. We tend to work together. We both have, we both wrote all of these characters. We both had a hand in writing and rewriting every single chapter. Certainly like the faith-based stuff, just as much as anything else, you know, Brian was a submarine officer. I was a surgeon with the teams. You know, Brian has a, has got his uh, MBA and was a park leadership fellow. I has a, have a medical degree. We bring different things to the table. There's no question about it. But I don't think, and Brian, if, if I'm remembering it wrong, you tell me, but I don't think there was ever a sitting down and saying, oh, you know, you should do this part and I should do that part. I think it's just, we're just one person. We're like this one weird shared brain at this point. One voice. Yeah. And the only thing I would add to that is that, you know, we do have this part of our method is, hey, uh, if there's something you're excited to write, mm. then let me know. And Jeff says that all the time. Is there something you want to write? You know, and I'll, yeah, I'd like to write this. What about you? You know, and, and that so far has always worked for us because as a writer, you know, sometimes the thing that you're the most jazzed about is the thing that maybe makes you the most uncomfortable or the thing that you haven't tried before. Because we're both curious individuals. I mean, I don't think you could become an author if you weren't somebody who was interested in the human condition and trying new things and innovating and curiosity. I think this is a curiosity driven business. And I've always been a naturally curious person. I think it, Jeff, we always tease him about all the different things he's done. Like, you know, his joke is my mom says I can't keep a job. And, and I think the truth is he could keep any job. It's just that he's 
got a very curious mind and wants to learn how to do different things. And I think we bring that to our writing because, you know, just look at Dark Intercept. It's like, we both wanted to write Sarah Beth, you know, 12 year old adolescent girl who has, you know, been kidnapped in this horrible situation. Yeah, I want to take a crack at that. Yeah, so do I. So that's not something that one of us hogs. We split it up. We each take turns because that's what's fun, you know? I'm just, I'm still mesmerized. I mean, how <laughs> harmonious that is because when you read the books, there is zero friction. Nothing is jarring. Even when it's one author, occasionally a transition cut between chapters might seem a little jarring or it might just be off-putting. Oh, I forgot what this character was up to, you know? <laughs> that hasn't been revisited in, in quite a few chapters. There's nothing jarring about the pacing and the almost like an outline of how we're navigating these different minds. And it's it's just fascinating that two people could do that so harmoniously. Well, in some ways, having two writers is an advantage in, in things like you're talking about, because, um, you know, well, we like to joke that between the two of us, we're one decent writer. But um, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, we that's an advantage for us in what you're talking about, that jarring stuff. Because when you write by yourself, you have a lot of preconception of what you've said and what you've thought. You know what you meant. But sometimes, and that's where the editors come in, the editor will come and say, I don't know what the hell you're talking about here. It's like, well, it's so obvious to me, right? Because I have it developed in my brain. And so because there's two of us and because we are both writing together, but rewriting each other's stuff as we go. A lot of those little things that you pick up in a, yeah. in a solo work are smoothed out um, because we have this team approach. And so I've got his back and he's got my back and neither one of us is at all embarrassed to say, Jeff, nobody understands what the hell you're talking about. So I'm just going to fix that for you. Okay. And I'll be okay, Brian, that sounds great. Thank you. And, and vice versa. So um, in fact, I'm, I'm joking there because we don't even say it. We just do it. We just smooth it out and, and it all works. So in many ways, the team approach helps us with that, I suspect. I mean, I'd be curious, Mike, because you've read a lot of our different series now. You know, you've read a lot of Anders Wilson's book. So it's like, I wonder if we, I mean, it's hard for us to know, but I wonder if you feel like, is there a particular voice to our series compared to like, you know, some of our peers who are solo writing, does it have a slightly different feel to it or not? It's funny you should say that because something I want to bring up in just a minute that I see as a hallmark of what you guys do, and it happened again in Dark Angel, is the barbecue scene. And <laughs> I, I just remember that from Sons of Valor. And it sounds like a small thing, but no, I, I think that's indicative of how much you grasp the personal impact and the personal relationships of the operators in the teams, at home, at a social gathering like a barbecue. Sometimes our Mitch Rapp is cold, he's closed, pushes everyone else out, and very slowly he'll work on that over the course of a book. And now we're into Scott Harveth, and he's a jokester. I feel like your main characters, the hallmark is, they're so human. They're not one or the other. They're all plus, you know, all aspects of being a tough guy, but also being a loving, caring mentor. You know, how Sarah Beth looks up to Jed now, how that relationship has blossomed. I feel like your main character, the shtick, is being fully human, fully human and alive and not one dimensional, which sometimes happens. That's a great compliment. Thank you. 
which I mean, I am just begging to ask you some deeper questions about these characters. So right before we give a spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't picked up the books, two things I got to address before we move on. These covers are awesome. <laughs> and McLeod Andrews is unbelievable as a narrator. How does it feel having some of the best covers and narrator in the space? Yeah, well, we've been we've been very blessed that, um, you know, we've sort of trimmed down to, to two publishers now. We're at Blackstone and, and Tyndale House. And we have just been blessed with these amazing teams. Like I would love to be able to arrogantly take responsibility for either of those things. <laughs> we, have, we have nothing to do with it. We did, Brian definitely had both of our narrators, Ray Porter and McLeod Andrews, were both at the very top of our wish list going into all of our deals. But it was our publishers who did the work and paid the money to get this top talent. And so we feel just so lucky that we have two of the best in the business narrating our stuff. And in terms of the covers, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can see them there behind Brian even you know, spread out there to the, to the right is the sons of valor Two. to the left. You have the first two and the shepherds. They're incredible covers. And I will say that these covers, the, the shepherd series and sons of valor also is the first time in our careers. These four covers were the first ones that came in and we were like, man, that's, you know, they sent them to us for our opinion. We don't, we don't get the necessarily the final say, but it's a very team approach to how we do these covers and they'll send us the roughs. And in both both cases in these series, we were like, these are incredible. Like there's very, very little that we would change. And so um, I would love us to be able to say that's all us. It's, it has nothing to do with us at all. It's the uh, it's the amazing talent at both of these houses. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we are switching over. So if you have not picked up either book in the Shepherd series, we're talking about both of them. And trust me, if you read Dark Intercept, you will put it down. And you will click buy on that Amazon Kindle or that checkout or your independent store. You will get Dark Angel. You'll need it. You'll need it. Absolutely need it after closing Dark Intercept. So pause this podcast. If you're not ready for some spoilers, we are going to go deep into both books. So give you a moment here. And the first question I got to ask you guys is how the heck did you write Victor? (laughs) To literally, this is a thriller, so you need a villain, but you have the villain, capital, the capital villain. (laughs) Whoa. Oh, my goodness. What was it like trying to put words basically in the devil's mouth? I like that. That's a good way to describe him, right? I mean, he is the devil's mouth, wouldn't you say, Jeff? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's uh, he's sort of this demon prince, right? He's uh, he's the XO for for the devil uh, in his, in his role here. It was, I will tell you that more than any other character, we've written a lot of geopolitical stuff and we've written some chilling bad guys and some dark people, but writing him when, what the first time either of us sat down and wrote a Victor chapter where you really see him like that Sarah Beth scene at the, at the compound, right. in dark intercept. Yeah, she's at the table. With yeah. Him. And she's yes. at the table and she can not just see how creepy he is, but feel that presence, that darkness. Um, when we wrote those chapters, I, I, I won't speak for Brian, but I bet I can. You had to take a little break and walk around. Oh, yeah. It was evening. You were turning lights on. Like, yeah, he really, really, uh, 
came to life. Is that even the right thing for him? But uh, he really came to life on the page in a way that was creepy. I did. I have written uh, maybe more supernatural, almost horror genre stuff than Brian had. Um, but I will tell you, Brian's ability to bring that character and Nick Woland also in the second book, a more humanistic side of that same evil to light. You know, Brian, Brian should be writing King novels and Kuntz novels. Yeah. <laughs> It was it was really cool. Very creepy characters to write. Um, but yeah, he's something. Wait till you see him in the next one. <laughs> yeah, and I was gonna say what I think's interesting, and we had we talked about this a lot too, is you know, if you compare like Victor to Kasim in Sons of Hour, Kasim is very sympathetic. Kasim, you can see yourself in Kasim's shoes as he becomes radicalized. You feel bad for him. And you don't feel bad for Victor. You know, like Victor, and you know, we didn't want to just write this monolithic evil, but how do you make Victor sympathetic? How do you make the devil somebody that you can see a side of him that might appeal to you? It's very challenging. And then do you even want to, right? So I think, especially seeing Victor through Sarabeth's eyes, this is, this is, I think, maybe why Victor is so chilling, is because you're seeing him through Sarabeth's eyes. And she feels so powerless and so vulnerable in that scene um, that you, as an adult, you sort of maybe almost feel yourself reverting back to that sense of powerlessness. You know, as a full grown adult male, you know, you put on your, especially as a father, you put on your shoulder, okay, well, I have to stand up against guys like that. But you remember being a five-year-old or six-year-old kid. You can remember looking up at an adult that intimidated you and feeling powerless and weak. And I think that accentuates his evil. You know, yeah, seeing. yeah. And that was and that was very intentional that we wanted to be able to see him first through Sarah Beth's eyes. So that when he is seen through the eyes of Jed or even through, you know, with a, a big spoiler alert, I'll, I'll be careful here just in case. But um you, know, you see him differently through this uh, detective's eyes uh, at various stages. I think that it, we were able to bring a much higher level of impact when seen through those eyes, having already seen him through the eyes of, of this 12-year-old girl, um, because we can all, we've all been 12-year-olds, not all been 12-year-old girls, but we've all been young. We've all been scared of the monster in our closet or the monster under our bed when we were young children. Um, and so getting that visceral response to him through her eyes, I think brought up a whole new level of fear of him, even when through the eyes of Navy SEAL Jedediah Johnson, right? And we do make him vulnerable too uh, for this evil. He feels yeah. In that in that rescue scene, we never say it's Victor in the window, mm-hmm. but you know it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. And he gets in Jed's head, and Jed, with all his strength and all his experience. That's almost the end for him right there. He almost can't withstand Victor's mental onslaught. Which which brings up another neat thing that we were highly intentional about doing. And if this was going to be your next question, I apologize. I'm not trying to hijack anything here. But um, what by, by first showing Victor through the eyes of Sarah Beth and then through the eyes of our main protagonist uh, in Jed, we were also able to develop this other theme of what 
both physical and spiritual rescue is. And so you can see at that point in the woods that Brian is talking about right after you see him in the window, a savvy reader is going to feel that who's really rescuing who kind of thing. Physically, Jed is rescuing um, Sarah Beth. There's no question about that. And without him, she would not survive. But emotionally and spiritually, you see this rescue of Jedediah who is searching for cures to this crisis in his faith and his belief system. And only, you know, in, in the Bible, it talks about coming to God as a child, that there's a purity in that. And Jed gets to see that in Sarah Beth. He gets to see that simple, I don't even want to use the word naive, but this naive, simple, childlike faith that is so much more powerful than he can achieve because he's so burdened by his adultness, right? And so we really were excited about this idea of how they are rescuing one another from Mm -hmm. their own, you know, toil with these evil forces. It was kind of fun to, to blend that all together. And we didn't say who it was. I, no, they'll let you ask your question, and, but you could maybe, I mean, let me ask you this question. We didn't say who it was in that moment where Jed was almost going to pull the trigger. Mm. Who talked him off the ledge? Who did you think it was? Did you think it was Sarah Beth? Did you think it was Rachel? Did you think it was God? Did you have an I, opinion on that? It's interesting because book two, having read it, might color my thoughts yeah. around that. Yeah. Ben has these gifts. Um, you knew Rachel had them, but it wasn't fully explored. I, I, if I go back to my initial thoughts, and by the way, that scene when he has the gun up against his chin is just how many times in thrillers does something keep you on the edge of your seat? But this time it's <laughs> on the edge of the seat like, oh my God, the devil could do that to any one of us at any time. Yeah. It's a whole different kind of, whole different mental experience. So I would say, Obviously, you think it's it. God put that voice there, but could only do so through the or or would choose to do so through the relationships that the characters have. So, yeah, I would say it's divine inspiration, but divine inspiration thanks to the people around you. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's being put there, but of course if God just starts speaking, that could freak somebody out in a moment of fragility, hearing voices, you know, but if you hear those voices in the context of community and relationship and the people who love you, because David and Rachel once did and still do in, in a, you know, a tattered, broken family kind of way. That's a great question. I was going to say also, you're more direct in book two, because Sarah Beth does say, Jed, you have your gun, use it. And when he's curled up in the corner, Nisha is there, even without having, or we don't know how far her spiritual gifts go, she is there to comfort Jed in in the flesh. Uh, Ben is probably doing something through his mind. And then finally, what pays off in that scene where he's curled up outside the, in the Vatican is the TSLs, how David's role comes full circle. Because uh, let's get into book two for a second. Yeah. If book one is establishing what this spiritual warfare could look like and the tricks of the devil from tempting him into suicide or using uh, temptation in some ways and the the huge cliffhanger with with Detective Perez, like, (laughs) whoa, like that is the scary parts of the devil. The people you love and think saved your life are playing the long game. (laughs) The devil's always playing the long game. But again, something you develop is Jed has to grapple with the past. How how him pushing David and Rachel out of his life might not be the healthiest, 
for him or for them. And so I think David really comes through in a key moment. And I've been iffy on the character. I, I wrote him off in book one as, you know, his daughter was taken. He's obviously a mental case. But there were some hints that maybe he's not somebody to trust. And is he still that childhood friend that Jed can rely on? Or is he now someone a little more selfish, if you will, the way he marries Rachel? I was just thrown off by it. Yet in book two, you realize we're all adults. We need to be yeah. adults and they need to be adults. And, and Jed honestly needs to grow up which is crazy. He's the leader of a shepherd team, you know? <laughs> right. but he needs to grow up and, and book two allows him to maybe just elaborate on that. It's a lot of really good insight. I mean, obviously you read at a very high level um, and you're, that you're grasping so many, um, you know, very subtle subtext details that are woven through here. So there's a lot to unpack in what you said, but, a, but a couple of things come to mind uh, and then Brian will probably come up with the brilliant ones. But um, this I, this idea of how you confront evil and that, you know, there's different things, you know, is it Nisha? Is it Ben? Is it Sarah Beth? Is it, you know, maybe it's all of those, right? You know, in, in uh, the Christian um, beliefs uh, in the scriptures, if you look at Romans, this, there's this theme of many parts of the body, right? In, mm -hmm. in Romans where they, you know, they're trying to teach the, the young church, you know, there's not just like a hierarchy and these guys are like going to be in the top of heaven because they're the priests. And then below them is the guy that takes the offering and below. They dispel all of that stuff and they say, look, every job is important. And, and that's something that really resonates with us as military guys. Right. This idea that you can't drive a you know, Brian can't just hop on a 688 class boat by himself and drive the boat around and deploy the missiles and all that stuff. He's one part of of a very important team where no job is unimportant. And so being able to weave that into the faith elements was important to us too. This idea that, you know, you know, was it God? Was it one of these characters? Yes. Right. Because in the, in the perfect faith world, all of the characters are responsive to what God needs them to do at the right time. And so different gifts for different people based on their personality and strengths and weaknesses and what the moment needs. And you see that in book two, introduced, but you'll really see it just to tease you too. You'll really see that theme pulled out in book three, that there's no one important job and that there's, it's about community and it's about being a team and it's about trusting one another, surrendering things to God. Yes. But to each other, you know, you all, you got introduced to a character who's a little bit of a, you know, grain of sand in the gears in this team, right? In book two, you're going to see that evolve and eventually come to a confrontation in book three. What is Sarah Beth's role in the, it's so, it, those, it's so fun to be able to talk about this stuff. And especially with a reader who got all of this subtext that we work so hard to put through there. I'm picking up what you guys put down and, and you put down some good nuggets for book three. <laughs> Another little thing, maybe it's what you hinted at. Did I catch correctly in that epilogue that Detective Perez's handler is in the House of Representatives as a representative from Tennessee. Was that a nugget dropped in there? <laughs> There's all kinds of little nuggets dropped in and around. <laughs> little things like that. Just I, I literally, I peeked up and I was like, no. And you know, we are things out differently than some thriller writers, right? Like, there's nuggets. You may have picked up on some really interesting nuggets that you're not going to even see in book three because we're saving them for book four. 
we're in the middle of uh, we're in the middle of outlining book four right now, and some of the things that you're bringing up are arced out into that book as well. So, I mean, one of the things that you know people like to talk to us about are action sequences and the operators and stuff, and that is one of the things we're known for, and we're proud of that. We do think we write some of the best action scenes in the business, but this is the stuff that we actually prefer to geek out on. Are you know all the subplots and stuff because I don't feel like and maybe this is just me, you know, being a writer, but you don't see a lot of that in people's reviews. You know, when we when I read a review, it's it's a lot of the same themes, the really in your face stuff that people mention. And that's great. But this interview is really rewarding for me because, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about David and Rachel and Sarah Beth and Jed and that uncomfortable dynamic. And you know, they made some headway, you know, they're a better place than they were in Dark Intercept in some ways, but it's more uncomfortable than others. You know, like, like you said, they're inviting Jed back into their life and maybe they need to, maybe they all need that, but that's awkward and that's mm-hmm. uncomfortable. And now it's introducing new problems and, you know, it would be hard to be David and not feel insecure. I mean, Jed's an imposing guy. He's big, he's built, he's accomplished, he's a Navy SEAL, he saved Sarah Beth. And we talked a lot about how do we make David matter? How do we give David strength? Because, gosh, you know, it's your wife's ex-boyfriend. He's kind of better than you in every way. So how do you not, and now your daughter even starting to worship this guy, how do you not be insecure around him? And um, and I, I don't know if David has completely figured that out. But you picked up on in this book, he has, he finds his courage, he finds his strength. Right. You see that evolution in book two, and it can definitely will continue in the next book, book three, which we'll get you an early, an early copy of. But um, so, yeah, that's really fun to be able to do these, this, make it an evolution, make it really an arc. You know, everyone talks about arc, but you can only arc a character or a plot or geopolitics so much in 400 to 500 pages if you have a thousand pages because you're willing to take the work to blend these things and arc them out over several books, it gives you a lot more ability to blend in some of the subtext that we're talking about. Another question that comes up that I'm sure you picked up on. I, I want to now now you're making it so fun for us. We're interviewing you. But um, <laughs> here's a question for you. Who is who is beyond redemption? in this good Uh, versus evil world, right? We have Maria who's definitely picked her side. We have Sarah Beth. Could, could somebody on the good side be tempted to the dark side? Like you saw with Nick Wolin, could the other direction also happen? Is it, are you ever too far gone that God's grace isn't available to you? And what might that look like? Um, And so there's all kinds of fun things like that to play with. You guys, you played with us there. (laughs) <laughs> when you're thinking Wolander is going to convince Morvant that he should be forgiven. He's trying to play the whole. <laughs> and again, that's how the devil operates. It's going to look at your gifts and turn them into your vulnerabilities. And so he's like, the way I can get Ben to lower his defenses is by asking him for forgiveness, you know, pleading my case that I was just tempted. And, and that's when the devil will get it in. And, and when Ben spoiler again, just shoots him. <laughs> I'm like, this is so deep. It's not like everybody deserves redemption, but Ben obviously knows something about your redemption doesn't have to be here and now, or maybe even won't even be on this earth. You're, you have, you reached the point of 
you have to make the final judgment call for yourself. Are you going to ask forgiveness not to me, a human, but are you going to ask forgiveness to the maker? And all I'm here to do is give you that opportunity to meet your maker. <laughs> right, right, and, uh, exactly. You toy with us in those moments. I, I mean, in, in the classical thriller, those moments are some emotional depth based on relationship or family. But for the majority of readers, it's not just relationship or family. It's and dealing with spiritual struggles with the families and with the relationships is going to come clashing of spiritual philosophies or history or levels of intensity or doubt. And to watch your characters do that, I think really, really hits something that the majority of readers will never get to get to experience in a book. You know, thrillers could just become the romance novel for uh, military folks, you know, just these yeah. throwaways. And, and you guys found and, and tapped into something so much deeper that I think a huge swath of people are very grateful that that you open the floodgates. Well, we, we feel like these are stories where, you know, a lot of the majority of our readers are still men, but it's probably a 60-40 split. So there are a lot of women reading our books and we are excited to hear what they think about, you know, these stories because you know, there are women in the defense industry and in serving on active duty. And there are also spouses uh, of, of men who are serving. And so, you know, anyone who is served in the military and has been married, regardless of whether you're a male or female, you'll un you understand the toll that this sort of life takes on both you and your spouse in your children. And if you don't work as a team, um, it's very easy to fail. And so we feel like these are stories where, you know, and I'm starting to see some of these in the reviews and it, it's encouraging where it's like a woman will write, I picked up this book for my husband. I read it first because I started reading it and I couldn't put it down. And then I finished it and I gave it to him and he read it. He loved it. He never reads books. You know, we want this. We feel like this is a, a series unlike any other in the sense that it can cause conversation to happen between men and women or guys in a, in a, in a, in a um, men's group or women in a book club. This, this, there's a lot of fodder for conversation in this series. Oh yeah. I mean, I can only imagine how a book club discussion of these topics would mean so much more than just coming together and saying, oh, the action was really cool. Oh, the shootouts were really great. Oh, you know, the hand-to-hand -hand combat was, whoa, ex exceptional. Like this is going to allow people, particularly operators who, who felt this in the field or coming home felt it and struggled with how they integrate back into civilian life. It, it could really do a lot. And that, that reminds me, I wanted to bring up Trinity Loop. I feel mm -hmm. like in this book, more than the first, you get into what spiritual development actually looks like, you know, saying yes to a community where you must be vulnerable and allowing everybody to play their gifts. Was it fun to think of what a training center for, uh, you know, spiritual warfare would look like? Oh yeah. My gosh. Yeah. And, and in fact, um, in fact, Brian, I'll let you do, I know you like to talk about this, this, uh, the way we set up the training. Why don't you, why don't you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he sees me grinning on the screen. Um, you know, we were so excited about this because uh, when we started writing it, we realized that not intentionally, and we won't even say this intentional, it just worked out that almost Dark Intercept's almost like a prologue, you know, because now with Dark Angel, when it starts, you introduce Jed, the book opens with him 
going up for his first day. So this is almost like that Batman type of story where it's like, you know, we get to see his training. We get to see him building the skills and becoming that hero, right? So it's almost like prologue with Dark Intercept, Dark Angel kicks off Jed's metamorphosis. But then as we were writing it, Jeff and I were like, wait a minute, you know, like, how do we get these guys to bond as if they were in buds, but they're all older? And like, how would you do that? And that's where the Trinity Loop, the veterans volunteering to go through basic training together. That's where that was born. And we think that's pretty cool. Pat ourselves on the back for that one, I guess. Yeah, because, you know, you, 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 when you talk about team before self, that requires a real brotherhood, right? In the, in the teams, in, uh, in special operations, whether it's Army, Navy, Air Force, whatever it is, um, you have to have a real brotherhood. You have to really be willing to put yourself second to your teammates. How do you do that for a guy who's just meeting a bunch of people from an eclectic background um, for the first time? And so the idea that it's through that shared suffering and risk Mm -hmm. that you form those bonds was sort of what inspired this idea of every time you add new members, the team has to go through all of the suck again together to form the stories and the jokes and the remember that time. And that's where that brotherhood is born. And this is a way in our minds, that Trinity loop was a way to accelerate that process because they're going to go out there into a very, very dangerous world uh, filled with things that most people don't even see. Um, and they have to have that from day one. So that was really fun to do that. Yeah. Like Eli's got a family. He lives on, on base, right? But he had to take eight weeks off to go live in the barracks, you know, and he volunteered to do that. But like what Jeff was saying, you cannot build those bonds without shared suffering. If you're not doing those runs together, doing those obstacle courses, doing the kill house, having to watch each other fall down and sometimes pick each other up or be the one that picks the other brother up or the sister up, those those experiences are what cause them to gel. Otherwise, it's just going to be everybody trying to henpeck for order and, you know, chest puffing and bringing the baggage from your old command and your old, well, this is the way we used to do it. You can't have that. This is the way we used to do it. This is the way we do it at Devgur. This is the way we do it at Delta. You can't have that. It has to be the shepherd's way. And the only way you can do that is by everybody having to figure out that shepherd's way together. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's why we, that we feel like as a reader, you get to see what it's like to become a shepherd now. Because you went along with Jed on that journey. That's right. Another area, you give us some insight into what it's like to be trained and to hone your skills, but in a much more adolescent way, is St. George's. We actually see Sarah Beth at the school. And I think, Jeff, you said you have two eighth graders currently. So you guys know what it's like to be in middle school with the drama between the girls here. Uh, Yeah, as does Brian. So when we wrote the first book, one of the fun things was we both have daughters who at the time were the age of Sarah Beth. Well, I guess she's aging as they age. So um, it it informed the writing in two ways. One, as as fathers, you know, her kidnapping and then some of the things that the parents have to think about the risks of in the second book. 
that resonates with us because, you know, losing your child, having her in danger, that's every father's worst nightmare, right? It's the thing that wakes you up in the middle of the night. And so it was very visceral for us having daughters that age to be able to write her. But the other thing it did, which was fun, was we had this, this crazy resource. Like Brian could go to Larkin or I could go to Emma and say, hey, read this chapter and tell me what I got wrong. And they <laughs> did not mind doing that at all. Oh, no, we won't listen to that music. Oh, my gosh, that's what am I, eight? 12-year-old would never have that on their bed. Or It was so much fun to be able to, to bring them in. And then, like you're saying, when in the second book, when she's at St. George's, we wanted to be able to do what we always do, which is to make it very human, make it very real, make it very relatable. And that means that just because she's at this special school developing these special gifts doesn't mean that there's not little clicks and it doesn't mean that there's not eighth grade drama or seventh grade drama mm -hmm. or whatever. We wanted that to be a big part of her experience because that's part of the human experience. And so to not do that would have been very artificial, I think. I was wondering with Corbin seeming so old for, you know, her age and, and she's a little older than Sarah Beth. So that makes sense. How would Sarah Beth be different than Corbin? And I think this book really shows they, they're different people. They're definitely different ages. And Sarah Beth isn't just going to become what Corbin is. It's going to take good. some molding. It's going to take some mentoring and the conversation at the end of the book with Jed and how Jed is realizing, I can't just be this hero. You can puff up my ego by being someone who loves and looks up to me. Everything has to go through your parents. And for a middle schooler to learn that lesson, it's hard. Wait till book three. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we wrote we wrote Dark Angel and Dark Fall back to back. Oh, okay. Um, and that's the first time we've done that with a series where we wrote two, two books back to back uh, without a break. And what was really cool, it's hard for me sometimes now, people always ask, you mix things up. I usually would say no, but it's hard for me actually in this conversation because I know the continuum of Dark Angel to Dark Fall and where everything happens. Um, but this Watcher's School and Corbin and Sarah Beth in particular, um, this was something we, we were really excited about having in the story. And I think our publisher at some times, they supported it, but they're a little apprehensive about, you know, well, this is not a middle grade book. This is not YA. You know, we want it to still be about the adults. But they indulged us because we felt like it is about the adults. But just like as a father, like my kids are coming with me. They're, they're with me always, right? So like the family component is too important to ignore or leave out. We wanted to make sure that Sarah Beth and Corbin and St. George's got enough airtime. And that un unusual role where you have adults who are relying on these kids, forcing them, not really forcing them, that's not the right word, but they need information that these kids can provide and only these kids can provide. And if the kids are left to their own devices out in the out in the world, they're vulnerable. We, we know that can't work, right? But you also don't want to take advantage of them. So we played, a, you'll see a lot more in Dark Fall about this theme of how much is too much and how old can we expect these kids to act and how much can they handle emotionally, you know, how much can they handle psychologically? Because Victor's not going to leave them alone. 
just because the shepherds decide to use or not use them, right? I, I think that was the right call. I, I think it's really important because a lot of readers are parents, or, or me, I'm a teacher and a middle school teacher. So I, I think as much as the books are written for adults, if you ignore the development of the young people and the young characters, particularly when they're so mission critical, and that's what yeah. makes it amazing. What other series has a mission critical kid? I mean, Mitch Rapp, Irene Kennedy's son is just a teenager you barely see. Anna's growing up now, but Kyle Mills has admitted, I really don't know what to do with her and how to age her. She's just going to have to be a thorn in Rapp's side. But but your young people are not that at all. They're essential. Yeah, they've got agency, right? And, and Sarah Beth in particular and Corbin as well. Um, and I don't think that, you know, there was talk about whether that would be a challenge. I never really felt like it was a challenge because I think that, um, especially for people who have children, Anyone, any, every, all of us either have children or have been one, right? So um, <laughs> I, I think, I think the idea of, you know, oh, it's so maternalistic to say, well, should these characters be used in that way? And, you know, wouldn't, isn't that a little unethical? And so when we were working on brainstorming this and talking to our editors and stuff like that, Brian and I did what we always do in those situations was rather than tamping it down and tempering it. We just put it more in your face. And that way you can see that we've thought about it. So, yes. you know, if, if, yes. a, if a reader or an editor is saying, well, I don't know about this. Well, then we're going to have a character say, I don't know about this. And, yeah. <laughs> and then you're forced to confront it on the page and begin the conversation. And we don't necessarily answer the question fully, but we ask the question that any normal adult would ask, like, is this really okay to have these kids over here? And like, you know, this, the toll that Brian was talking about emotionally and psychologically, you know, you talked about Corbin, that was really cool that you picked up on that. Yeah. She's older than her, but in a normal environment, she's not enough older than her that she would be so much older than her, but she's experienced things during those three or four years that are not normal for a young teenager to experience. And they have aged her in some ways for the good. And, and, you know, she's a very mature, but in some ways for the bad, like, did she get cheated out of childhood? Did she miss out on things that are crucial? And so we ask those questions right on the page and our different characters have different answers and they're, yeah. it's Because not everybody's going to agree, right? Yeah, There's going to exactly. be people that read this book and say, oh, they went too far. And there are other people that say they didn't go far enough or right. you need to get all these kids out there in the field. And you have right, and you have the mom that's like, she's she's taking it from a mom perspective. You have the operators yeah. who are like, we got to have this information. And then you have people in the middle that are like, you know, like Pastor D who is more, hers is more like, look, we're going to do everything we can to help them and protect them. But we didn't make this decision. God did. Like yeah. God gives them, gives them gifts for a reason, who are we to stand in front of that? And so we were able to have the sort of ministerial view, the mom yep. view, the operator view, Ben, who's in the middle because he's a dad. And also, and we. Well, and, and, the, and the kid view, because they're always like, I can handle it. Give me more. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I can, I can do it. You know, they want to prove they can. But look at Corbin. She carries around this notebook everywhere she goes. And if you look through that notebook, you're like, it's a horror show. This is what this kid, this is what she's been having to carry around in her mind for her entire life, right? Yeah. yeah. So that was sort of the metaphor. That that notebook is like the metaphor for, yeah, 
This is the toll it takes. This is right. everything she's seen, you know? Look at her first scene where she's hiding out in the bathroom of the right. bookstore and the cafe. It's like the toll was on her from the very, That's very right. beginning. And then by being a mentor to Sarah Beth later on, you realize that's how she copes with this. She's got the pastor. She's got the shepherds. She has a network. You know, the the society or the institution of the shepherds have created these safeguards to protect her, even though she's been through this. And I, yeah, when, when Pastor D came in and then uh, great choices, I think you made with how you incorporate the kids, because that could be a really, really hard thing to write. I can't wait for you to read Dark Fall. You're going to oh, be going away. <laughs> and, and I know the listeners can't can't wait. Everyone can't wait. So keep them coming. I'm glad to hear you're you're talking about book three. And and I heard a, a drop before book four. I'm I really really hope this series. I think it will be a mainstay of the thriller verse and really usher in a a new era. And one other thing you mentioned earlier, Jeff, we had started on our podcast, the Thriller Pod Scorecard. And for the Mitch Rapp books and now the Scott Harvath books, we're doing some rankings. And one of our categories is buy-in and believability. And obviously, I was thinking like, oh, if one day, you know, we're, we're going to score different books, something like yours and The Shepherds, how do you do that? But no, I would give it a five out of five on buy-in, which sounds absurd. I'm reading about the devil and these super spiritual soldiers and whatnot and the mind meld with the watchers and, and the mind connections. But it's believable in the fact of if there were the realm that the devil is operating in and that the good guys need to come together and unite and figure out, this is it. This is how it would feel. This is how it would be described. It's not exactly what it is, of course. There's no analog for it, one-to-one. -one. But you capture the essence, the importance of community, the importance of everyone using their gifts and cultivating the gifts for one another. It's just amazing to think the Shepherd series is one of the more believable thrillers that I've read where I say, oh, yeah, that could happen. Yet it's also the most fantastical. <laughs> well, that's a, that might be the biggest compliment on this series that yeah. we will that we will ever <laughs> receive. So thank you for that. Yeah, because it means that you were happy to suspend your disbelief and come into this world and right. this world felt real to you. Right, right. So I do have to ask then, just as we wrap up. Have you had any any criticism coming at it from the other side of things of the, you know, leave spirituality out of the thrillers or this is too unrealistic. It's all, quote, made up or or even just a, an interfaith kind of approach of what would you say to readers outside of the Christian tradition? And I know the book stands on its own as an action story that anyone could get into, but. Have you considered, do you care, have you considered uh, what other perspectives might say about this is not the type of thriller that's for me? Are you okay with it not being a thriller for everybody? Or do you think it is universal? Yeah. So, well, first of all, very happy to report that the negative feedback has been minuscule. There have been a handful of reviews or emails that are like, oh, you know, keep the faith stuff out of my thrillers. Um Part of that was a little confusing because, you know, it says Tyndale House on the spine of the book and right. and the description is on the back cover. So, like, you sort of should have known what you were getting. If you didn't want it, that's OK. Um, I will say to the to the last point, do we care? It's not we don't it's not that we don't care in that apathetic. I don't care what you think kind of way. It's right. more we're happy that if it's not a book for you, that you go read something else. There's plenty of books out there and that's fine. In fact, there's other things 
in our in our wheelhouse right on our website that maybe you will enjoy. Um, but all of that being said, I think that um, this is a book for everybody. If you like action thrillers, um, Brian said on an interview, it cracked me up, but it's like the perfect the perfect analogy for this is, you know, if you every it is universal to ask these questions. If your answers turn out to be different than mine or Brian's or these characters, that's okay. And I would take it up a level beyond that to what Brian said on a recent interview, which is, I love Harry Potter, but I don't believe in wizards. Like, That's it's, it's okay for you to enjoy a world that we created, even if you're one of those people that doesn't buy into the way the, the questions got answered. Uh, it's still a, a fun ride and, and exciting fiction for you. So um, I guess that's sort of a, a wordy way to hit all three of your points. Um, but most most of our readers, our existing readers, have been thrilled to accept the series and have enjoyed it very much. Like Brian said, there's a lot of people that are like, I didn't know if this would be the book for me because of these elements, but I loved it. And so that's yeah. the biggest compliment. Brian, what do you add to that? Yeah. I, I, well, I don't have anything to add other than to say, you know, if you are apprehensive about it, try it on audible. And if you don't like it, you can return it. <laughs> so <laughs> if you like it, keep it. If you don't send it back, that's what <laughs> We do encourage everybody to keep their books and audiobooks and you know support the authors. But um, how could you listen to the audiobook and not keep listening once you hear that voice? You know, the voices of Jed and Ben and Sarah. That's ben. why I feel pretty confident saying if you listen, <laughs> you're, you're gonna like. You'll be getting book two if you like book one. And if it's not for you, that's okay. We've got a we've got one for you. We we're we just signed uh, deals. We're, we have some techno thrillers coming out over the next couple of years. We're embracing the, you know, the grounded science fiction. We've got some speculative thrillers coming out beginning in 2024. We have something for everybody. You don't have to like this one. There's something for you. That is great. I appreciate you guys coming, though. It makes me think of one other thing, that question. Have you considered some interfaith shepherding? Are there any international or Oh, or other gosh. traditions that may be operate in this universe. I wonder what that would look like. You know, the Hindu, the Muslim, the the Jewish version of the shepherds, and what a team up might might look like down the road. Well, you certainly planted a seed there. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, everybody, I'm looking forward to it. You should be looking forward to it. I, I didn't expect in this interview to learn as much as I did about books three and 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 four eventually. Thanks for joining us for the second time on the No Limits Thriller Podcast. You guys are a blast. Keep writing. Please give us more of these characters. You bet. And thanks so much for having us. I will tell you, you get to be one of the first few to release the information that we signed a, no, a new deal for three more books. So you can expect at least six books in the Shepherd series. Uh, so Tyndale has been excited to embrace this. Um, and there's going to, you know, go to our website, andrews-wilson.com. Now is the time to get that newsletter because first of all, we don't spam you. You only get real information. You know, we don't, we don't, and we don't, you give your information to anyone, but there's a lot of exciting announcements coming in the next few months about some media stuff and um, a feature film that we've op already optioned. This Shepherd series has been optioned for television and we have a few other media deals in the works love to tell you more, but then why would you sign up for the newsletter? No, if we could tell you, we would. But if you sign up for the newsletter, you'll get to hear first. So go to andrews-wilson.com. we got a lot of exciting things going on. I love it. That's excellent. Thank you so much. Get that newsletter and pick up your copies of Dark Intercept and Dark Angel. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. See ya. 
All right, guys, hope you enjoyed that interview. Please subscribe, rate, review. We'll be coming to you later on this week with uh, another episode, Mike's interview with Ward Larson. Be sure to check that out. And as always, keep the faith, baby. Yeah, it was fun, man. That was really good. Yeah, we'll come back anytime. Love these books. I was of the the ilk of I sure I'm I'm a Catholic, practicing Catholic. I don't know if I want that in my books. I will give it a try. You guys talked it up last time. You were very convincing. Drove a hard bargain. <laughs> I, I, I literally from the first two minutes of the audiobook, I was like, I, I, "This is going to be one of my favorite series ever." <laughs> I, I don't think I picked up a series and that quickly convinced myself I'm in. That's awesome. Because I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical by nature. I don't want to commit to something that's going to take hours of my life, yet I'm happy to give you hours. <laughs> well, I will tell you, and this is this is no BS, Dark Fall might be our best book we've ever written. Okay. It's, a, it's Return of the Jedi epic wow. sort of story. Yeah. So yeah. you're going to love it. All the threads we talked about in this interview all come together in one last book. And then we get to launch off on the shepherds and their exploits. So buckle up.